me ask you to turn to John chapter 20. We will be in this uh, throughout the morning, different portions of this. We will begin with the 24th verse. This is after the crucifixion, after the time of silence, and then after the resurrection, it says in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nail and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. (coughs) Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, will you in these moments open our hearts to your word? We need to hear afresh from you. And so we plead for that, not because we deserve it. We do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I want to stick up for Thomas. You know what they call him. Doubting Thomas. The poor man had followed Jesus. He had been with him all of that time, and what people down through the centuries have labeled him is Doubting Thomas. Now, here's why I want to stick up for him a little bit. I don't think it's fair. Look look at the rebuke. Jesus rebukes him and says, stop doubting. Now, typically, what people say is that, uh, well, you know, his problem is he didn't have the faith that everyone else seemed to have, uh, even at that point. But that's not the case. You know, here's the question is, what what was that rebuke for when Jesus said that? Was he rebuked because he didn't believe until he saw? 
Is that any different than the others? See, that's, that's the reason I don't think that was the problem. I don't think that's what he was being rebuked for, even though that's what most people uh, blame him for. They say that Thomas must not have had enough faith. After all, the other disciples, they had the same problem. They didn't believe until they saw it, did they? The women didn't believe until they saw. In fact, when they went to the tomb, their initial reaction is somebody's stolen the body of the Lord. None of them that we know of were rebuked for doubt. So what's the deal? Why was Thomas rebuked? Think about it. They had heard all of the things that Jesus had taught about how he would die and then he would rise again. No one was there, and those that went first didn't believe. So why was Thomas rebuked? I'm convinced that he was rebuked because he doubted the testimony of those who had seen Jesus, the testimony of trustworthy eyewitnesses. That's why he was rebuked. Those who were now apostles, and he had questioned whether they were telling the truth or not. Now, what's an apostle? It's someone who had been with Jesus during his ministry, had been called out specifically, and had seen the resurrected Christ. So if Jesus hadn't appeared to Thomas, he wouldn't have been able to be an apostle. But because of his appearance to Thomas, he could be one of the apostles. Now, why is that important? What's, what's the deal about the apostles? Well, the scripture says over in Ephesians 2, it says that uh, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It is the foundation of what they said, of their eyewitness testimony. It is the word that it, it was based upon. That's how we know about Jesus. They were there, and Jesus is not going to appear to each of us in the same way. So that's where faith comes in. So why does John include this in his gospel about this doubt of the word of those who had witnessed? I believe it is because he wants us to see what special treatment they got all of the appearances that they received, all of the reasons why they were trustworthy and not only could Thomas trust them and should he have, but we can trust them as well. Down in verse 31 it says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so what about you? <coughs> Where are you with this? Are you willing to believe those who were there and testified to what they saw? Or are you in the position of Thomas where he had to be rebuked for doubting the testimony of those who were there and were trustworthy witnesses. Now we need to understand that Thomas was dealing with some sort of pride here. Got to see it myself. Maybe even some jealousy. He was saying, I'm not about to believe what you say. He has to appear to me or I will just refuse to believe. that sound familiar to any of you? Maybe some of you would say, well, you know, if I ever saw him, I'd believe him. If that sounds at all familiar to you, then be encouraged. Because you've got a friend in Thomas. Now, you don't want to stay in that place. It's a place of pride. It's not a place where you need to remain. You can't let your pride overtake when eternity is at, at stake. But don't give up. There's more. Thomas's story is not over, and I pray that neither is yours. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Verse 26. Thomas said, uh, was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know what's amazing here? We looked at Thomas's doubt, I want us to look for a moment at the response of Jesus, how gracious it is. This is pure grace on his part. Thomas didn't deserve a response like this after his initial response to people saying Jesus was alive. Two things about this are rather amazing. One is that Jesus knew what Thomas wanted and thought he needed. He knew that he thought he needed more evidence of the resurrection. And then, secondly, Jesus offered that proof. He didn't have to. He stood before Thomas and offered to let him touch his wounds. That's grace. Now, some of you, again, might be tempted to say, well, if he would do that for me, then I would believe too. Some of you would be like uh, Job 23, where he says, <clears throat> if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, and I would find out what 
he would answer me. Some of you flatter yourselves in thinking, if only I had more evidence, I would believe. You need to know the amount of evidence is not your problem. You may think it is, but it's not. Attorney Sir Edward Clark wrote, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. What evidence? What evidence is uh, Sir Edward Clark talking about? Because Jesus didn't appear to him like he did to Thomas. Well, quickly, let's talk about some of the evidences of the resurrection. Things that, that simply cannot be ignored as recorded in this book of truth. You have the appearances, first of all, to Peter, the twelve, to more than 500 at the same time, to James, all the apostles, to Paul, to Mary in the garden, the women by the wayside, disciples on the road to Emmaus, to Thomas, to seven disciples on the seashore. Those are just the ones recorded. Certainly many more over a 40-day period. Appearances to all sorts of people in all sorts of circumstances, in all kinds of settings, and often it was when they were not expecting to see him. Typically, illusions happen when people have a great expectation to see someone. And that was not the case. They expected when they went to the tomb to see him dead because that's how they had last seen him. They were continuing to prepare his body to lay there forever. And then secondly, after the appearances, you have the empty tomb. Now, Christians sometimes hear uh, this rebuttal for Christ's resurrection. Well, the, the disciples might have been well-intentioned, but in their grief and, and sorrow, they suffered from individual hallucinations. That led to group hallucinations. Listen to one scholar on that theory. He, he says, uh, recently some people have tried to say, ah, well, those who you love die. Sometimes you'll experience them in a room with you, smiling at you, maybe even talking to you. Then they'll disappear again. Maybe, maybe that's what happened to these disciples. And he says, that's a well-documented thing that can happen with grief and so on. The problem is, here's the crunch, is that disciples understood about all of those kinds of things. They understood about uh, visions and ghosts and things like that. And if, if they had seen a vision of him, they might have said, well, you know, that, that was very comforting for the moment. But it's not all that comforting because he's still laying in the tomb. 
But what made it different was that they saw him and the tomb was empty. Then you have the grave clothes, how they were laid out, evacuated by Jesus. And then you have the church. New Testament writings, independent accounts, all agreeing on the basic facts of the resurrection. You have the practice of the Sabbath where the church from this time on, instead of gathering on Saturday, they gathered on the first day of the week because they knew that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. You have a band of disillusioned men, deniers, doubters, changing the world. Peter the denier, becoming Peter the preacher, the professor, Saul the persecutor, becoming one who loved Christ perhaps more than anyone ever, Thomas the doubter. Thomas, who made perhaps the most significant profession of who Jesus was in all of Scripture. After analyzing 600 pages worth of arguments uh, for and against the historicity of Christ's resurrection, Dr. Michael Lacona says this, a, a good critical scholar must account for the facts with integrity. And sometimes the facts, he says, are in tension with our desired outcome. And then he illustrates that by uh, talking about uh, John Adams long before he was president when he was an attorney. And he, uh, after the Boston Massacre, went to court to defend the British troops who he believed were innocent in that case. Nobody else would defend them. He said, however, the truth must be defended. And so he did, even though it made him very unpopular at that point. And this is what he said at the end. Facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of the facts and the evidence. So Dr. Lacona says, that's the case with the resurrection. He says, no matter how, how much one may loathe the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and maybe even fantasize about other outcomes, the historical bedrock remains the same. Jesus' resurrection is the best historical explanation of the relevant historical evidence. Now, here's the point. If you're flattering yourself to say, you know, all I need is more proof, that's not the problem. It isn't the problem. You're kidding yourself. The proof is here. It's more documented than many things we accept all the time in history. There's another thing at the end of Jesus' ministry. It says this in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountains, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him 
but some doubt it. Do you get it? Here they are. They're looking at him, and some doubt it. That's what we've got to understand. One commentator said, it's almost impossible that that verse would be in the Bible unless it really happened. Why would you ever put a verse in there like that that some doubted even at that point? So there's plenty of evidence. Unbelief, though, prevails over evidence. For some of you, Jesus could stand up here and address you. And there would still be doubt. Unbelief is in spite of evidence. They had all kinds of evidence and still didn't believe. So if you think that's your problem, you, you really don't know your own heart. There is something in our heart that is a positive resistance to believing. And until you realize that, you, you're not going to believe. The good news is that that also does not need to be the end of the story. We will hear that in a moment. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Remember that on the one hand, Thomas was shown Jesus in order that he might be an apostle, a testifier to those he would know from then on and to us. But on the other hand, he'd been rebuked for doubting. He responds to that rebuke with maybe the greatest profession in the Bible. My Lord and my God. He knew Jesus. He'd walked around with him for several years. He knew he was a great man. But he was saying something much more, much different, much greater. Too bad he's labeled Doubting Thomas. Most see this as the high point of the gospel, and many see this as the high point of all of the gospels this profession, this transformation, this show of grace sums up the work of Christ. And John has been trying to get that point across through his whole book, and here it is. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he called his enemy's hand. He said, okay. It's time for you either to crown me or to kill me. Listen to what I am saying, what I've been saying. It's time. Up until then. Off and on he'd said, my time has not yet come. And then 
he brought it to a head. He said, there, there's, in essence, there's no in-between. That's the theme of the Gospels. Look, look at my claims. Look at my claims to authority, ultimate authority, in your life, and you can kill me or reject me, but you can't be neutral. You can't, you can't go around saying he's a real nice guy, he's a real good example. That's not, that's never enough with Jesus. And so finally Thomas proclaims Jesus as the, his Lord and his God. He has heard his teaching. He sees the doctrine. He believes it. And notice he doesn't say, you are the Lord, the God. Makes it real personal. How does one get to that point? Well, if you don't see that, you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not trying to offend you. I, I just want you to know. I want you to know where you stand with him. That's his point. So if you, if you don't see that as the ultimate authority who Christ is, if it's not real personal, then at this point, you're not a Christ follower. Even though you may have some good or okay feelings about him. So how do you get to that point? How did Thomas get to that point? Well, eventually, he did listen to those who were attesting to him. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him and told him and told him says, we have seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'll never believe, they kept telling him. Now I want you to see how patient Jesus was with Thomas. And that'll tell you how patient he is with us as well. Verse 26. Jesus at this point could have stormed into the room and said, Thomas, come on, man. You've heard everything I have taught. You've seen all my miracles. He could have cleared him out like he cleared out the temple. But instead, it says, he came in and said, Peace be with you. Now that's patience. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Okay, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You see, he knew all of Thomas's flaws, and he loved know your flaws too. That's the good news. 
So what do we mean by believe? Well, I can give you three stages. There's all kinds of ways to look at this. But one, one element of belief would be to say, uh, you know what, I really believe that they believed Jesus rose from the dead. They were sincere. But that's not enough. Or you could go a, a, a giant leap beyond that and you could say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But you know what? That's not enough either. You might think it is, but you know what? Even Satan believes that. He knows that. So, so obviously there's got to be something even beyond that in terms of what a saving belief is. The next step is you must respond to the Christ who came bursting out of the tomb that day. It's a personal response. Alistair McGrath illustrates it with penicillin, of all things. He's, he says it, it's, it's kind of like this. Penicillin, you know, was a drug responsible for saving lives of countless individuals, you know, dealing with blood poisoning, basically. He said in terms of looking at penicillin, there's several stages. You can accept that the bottle exists. <laughs> That's not enough to help you. You can uh, even trust in the ability to, for it to cure blood poisoning. And that's not going to do it. Nothing will change unless I receive the drug which it contains and allow it to begin to destroy that which is killing me. And so that's the kind of faith that we must have. Not just that, yes, that's true out there, but that is true and it is true for me. See, what happened is that Jesus came and, and showed himself. And maybe today that's, for some of you, what's happening. Just one last thing. I want you to remember his wounds. That's what we see here. Jesus comes in and he, he shows them to him. And by the way, he, he had those till he ascended into heaven. I think we'll probably still see them. That's his perfection. That's his glory. He showed his wounds. He, he says, look at, look at these wounds. He didn't just show up as God and say, believe and obey. He said, look, look at these. He wasn't just a, a man with wounds or a God with no wounds. He was a God with wounds. And he showed Thomas and he shows us. And what happened was then Thomas dropped his requirements, his conditions. Remember his condition? I will never believe until I can touch those things and, you know. 
He dropped all his requirements when he saw that. Remember last week we talked about the thief on the cross. He had a requirement. Save my skin. Then maybe I'll be a follower. So if you have a condition today, uh, a requirement. In other words, <clears throat> I will believe if blank. We talked about it. Some of you would say, if I had more evidence, if I saw you, if you did this or that or whatever. You know what? Whatever's in that blank, that becomes your God. That's the thing that's most important to you. And I will tell you this. Whatever's in that blank will never die for you. It will make you die for it. We must drop those requirements. Because Jesus is different. Crown him with many crowns. Behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty. Glorified, that is the risen king. Meet him today. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord for that which is not just a story, it's an account. You have given us all the evidence we need. What we need is Jesus. Will you open our hearts to him today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.